Welcome to another Infographic Instant conference lecture series. In this Infographic Instant, we will be looking at protecting international financial centers like Hong Kong from a China origin crisis. The usual disclaimers apply. So, let's start the presentation by looking at an age-old question in macroeconomics. How does a city or country deal with economic fragility and potential banking, macroeconomic, real estate, and other types of crises? Many have argued that economies have become more fragile since the anti-crisis measures adopted in 2007 have been taken. Some of these measures, as you are aware, include the U.S.'s Dodd-Frank Act, uh, the Europe Single Supervisory Mechanism, uh, Financial Stability Board Harmonization, and so forth. The objective of this raft of legislation has been to decrease the fragility which brought on the global economic crisis in 2007. However, what we see in both the OECD member states as well as in China is that these economies in many ways have become more fragile rather than less fragile. And what's particularly important to note is that the conditions existing in China as of late 2010 are roughly similar to those conditions existing in the U.S. at the onset of the economic crisis. We see the same underlying drivers, particularly in highly leveraged property sector, which has been highly securitized, uh, the existence of a large proportion of shadow banking transactions relative to normal conventional banking. We see large debt burdens and we see a uh, overheated stock market. So this naturally leads to the question, how can we protect a jurisdiction against a crisis at home, but particularly a crisis uh, in one's neighbor country where that neighbor is significantly larger than our own international financial center? Now there are several challenges when protecting our own city, city-state, depending on the jurisdiction that you're looking at, because clearly uh, our discussion relates more to more than just Hong Kong. Uh, you can think about Singapore, you can think about New York and the wider U.S. Hitherland, you can think about London and the wider EU Hitherland. You can even think about some of the international financial centers in the Middle East and think, well, what would happen if macroeconomic conditions significantly deteriorate in the jurisdiction in which that international financial center serves? So we know that, that an international financial center faces three challenges that it cannot affect the laws of the foreign jurisdiction that it highly relies upon that the international financial center itself has natural fragility because the proportion of, of financial transactions relative to its own domestic economy are very, very large. And in many cases, the foreign jurisdiction is itself a part of the local jurisdiction. These economies are very closely tied, thinking about Hong Kong and China, thinking about New York and the U.S., and so forth. So in some ways, regulators cannot affect the 
underlying conditions which lead to the macroeconomic fragility, they have to engage in second best measures in order to insulate the International Financial Center. And what we know is that literature actually provides very few applications of theory to specific cases. In the last four or five years, several macroeconomists have modeled uh, the way that crises occur and the ways that economic policy can help reduce this fragility. But we do not see many of these theories actually applied in practice. So what can we learn from the literature? How might it be applied? And what would be the result? Let's think about Hong Kong for a moment as one example of these international financial centers we've been talking about. Uh, Hong Kong's fragility, just as in many other international financial centers, comes from two main channels, which you can see in the paper. The first channel is the banking channel, whereas in Hong Kong banks, deal with a significant proportion of deposits, loans, and other financial transactions involving mainland persons, and uh, the real estate channel, whereas in Hong Kong's domestic real estate sector is highly linked with demand from the mainland, is highly linked with uh, asset prices and demand for assets on the mainland and so forth. We've plotted out some of these linkages in figure 7.1. Now we know that increasing ties to our mainland, in this case China, uh, means that Hong Kong is becoming increasingly fragile to this mainland origin crisis. And we see that in figure 7.2 with uh, Hong Kong's exposure to Chinese financial assets, and we see a significant increase over time, particularly after the financial crisis. And we clearly observe that Hong Kong is becoming more dependent on the mainland rather than less. And we also know that the tidal wave or shock needed to force Hong Kong's banks into bankruptcy has become smaller over time and relative to other international financial centers is very small indeed. And what we see if the US, Singapore, and to a lesser extent Japan have relatively um, resilient banks, Hong Kong's banking sector is less resilient, certainly more than Swiss banks or UK banks, but there is considerable scope for improvement. And unlike uh, Swiss banks or US banks, banks in those jurisdictions are not sitting right next to a very large and fragile nature that everyone is predicting to experience a crisis in the upcoming years. So what can Hong Kong banks and policymakers do in order to insulate the International Financial Center against this shock? Now we know that financial law is one of the key drivers affecting uh, risk-adjusted returns in an international financial center. In the literature, you see frequent discussion of international financial centers' attractiveness as uh, the transaction costs of banks, as rate of return on capital, many structural factors affecting uh, rates of return in that jurisdiction. But there have been a wave of studies in the last three or four years, and I must say immodestly, uh, some of those studies belong to, to me and my team, where we look at the effect of financial law on IFC performance 
and we find that controlling further factors, financial law plays a determinant role in affecting the rate of return as well as the risk of bankruptcy or risk of bad outcomes, if you will, in these international financial centers. And the figures that you see in front of you, we try and illustrate some of the financial law angles in terms of affecting Hong Kong's financial performance. So in figure 2.11, for example, we show the relative effect that Hong Kong's regulations have on different groups of banks within Hong Kong. Now we know that different groups of banks, Chinese banks, local banks, and international banks, face overlapping but different groups of regulation, of financial law in general. And we can measure the effect that financial law has on these different groups by looking at their costs and by looking at the, their profitability. Naturally, assuming that they all three groups were exposed to the same financial law, we would expect very similar relationships between our data. But in fact, we see these three groups having very different profitability and cost performances. Therefore, it stands to reason that there is something different about the financial law sets that each of these groups are facing. And once we can understand those differences, we can start to pass regulations which help protect some of these banks against shocks. Uh, figure 2.21 looks at the size of Hong Kong's non-financial institutions relative to those in other IFCs. And what we see is that these institutions, which are typically a proxy for shadow banks, it's the largest amongst the jurisdictions studied by the Financial Stability Board. So we know that uh, a large proportion of Hong Kong's financial sector is based in this shadow banking system, therefore further fragilizing Hong Kong's financial sector. Looking at figure 2.12, this asks the question whether regulation causes banks from different groups to prefer earning non-interest income. We know that banks earn income from two sources among many. Either they can collect money from deposits or they can collect money from uh, service fees and other types of income. Now, in the good old days, banks earned their money from collecting deposits and lending it out and collecting a margin between those two rates of interest. To the extent that we observe banks running away from that traditional role, we know that there's something wrong. We know that financial law is creating a significant distortion, making it more profitable for banks to run away from the activities that they were uh, created to engage in. So we know that financial law plays a deleterious role in Hong Kong's financial markets because we, know, we see that the institutions which have been set up to provide these financial services are in fact running away from giving these traditional financial services. And it's no surprise when we look at the overheads, when we look at costs in Hong Kong relative to other jurisdictions, Hong Kong has some of the highest banking costs in the developed world. So it's clear that financial law is the problem rather than the solution in Hong Kong. Financial law makes Hong Kong's banks expensive, unwilling to engage in banking, and increases their fragility to foreign shocks, particularly given the large size of its shadow banking markets.
So how can we understand the role that financial law plays in Hong Kong? Well, we resort to the usual economic story of structure, conduct, and performance. We know that financial law effect is affecting the structure of the banking sector and consequently its conduct, and we observe relatively poor performance. So given this canonical framework from uh, industrial organization, we know that if we want to change the performance of our IFC, we've got to step back and change the financial law which is driving structure and conduct. Now, how do we do this? We look at uh, five areas driving incentives and therefore focus on these five prongs, if you will, of legal reform in order to improve Hong Kong's banking sector as much as possible. Now, what does it mean to quote-unquote improve Hong Kong's banking sector as much as possible? Well, one way to think about the problem, and I think a way which really focuses the minds of regulators, is not to have a solution in search of a problem. How do we maximize welfare? In this case, how do we maximize the long-term risk-adjusted value over time of Hong Kong's assets under management in the presence of strategic competition from other international financial centers using the least cost package of reform. So the attractive thing about our approach to changing financial law is we use this tried and true method from economics that says look we're trying to maximize something we have these constraints how do we do it? And our report focuses on 22 recommendations for very specific changes so it's taking this abstract theory, but it's applying it in very specific changes of provision, provision 72.6 of Article C, something that regulators can actually plug and play, if you will, rather than just providing these general blah blah recommendations that most reformers give in books, articles, etc. And you'll see from the depiction on this slide that we focus on five areas of reform. Uh, the first and key part is reforming Hong Kong's regulators because without a efficient set of regulators, the other reforms are hardly possible. Part of the reform looks at broadening cooperation with China, of course, as this uh, fast-growing jurisdiction and thinking, well, how can we take advantage of opportunities without necessarily exposing ourselves to risks? Uh, diversification away from the mainland, understanding, well, China's an important market, but it's a, it's a big, wide world out there, and how can we attract funds from other jurisdictions? deepening participation in Hong Kong's financial and corporate affairs, namely understanding that we have our own domestic market, which is in some ways dysfunctional as well. So how do we clean up matters at home so that we can better seize opportunities across the border and encouraging public participation in financial sector policymaking? It's understanding well, it's not just the regulators versus everyone else, but how can everyone else actually help Hong Kong's regulators, and especially these reformed revised regulators, to seize these opportunities across borders? We need to affect tiny parts of Hong Kong's laws, almost like a trim tab you see illustrated in the slide. And what these trim tabs do is they affect a tiny little change, which then changes the rudder that moves the big ship. 
So the goal isn't to adopt a huge package of reform, in some ways creating this huge rudder which then turns the financial sector ship. It is to focus on very important tiny provisions in Hong Kong's laws, which then affect all the other areas of financial law, which is then turning the ship. And by doing that, we focus on this part of the maximization problem, which says using the least cost package of reform. Complexity theory, to some extent, will help us understand better how law interacts with itself. And for those of us that aren't familiar with complexity theory, hopefully this will be an interesting discussion of a new branch of the social sciences, which we can invoke into financial law and economics in order to think about financial services reform. So I said that the key pillar of reform in Hong Kong is reforming the regulators. Uh, without an efficient set of regulators, then all other reform is hardly possible. In the last 10 years or so, uh, academic debate has raged over the optimal type of regulatory structure. That means whether uh, the banking regulator, the securities regulator, the insurance regulator, they should be focused on their own specific areas, or whether we need to focus on institutions rather than functional capacities. So understanding that the large banks now do all three, insurance, securities, and banking, maybe we need a regulator that's focused on these consolidated financial services firms rather than trying to split up regulators to focus on these integrated clients. Or conversely now in the literature, a wide amount of econometric evidence shows that integration amongst the regulators, and specifically a type of integration known as Twin Peaks regulators, can best provide the lowest cost, highest impact regulatory supervisory structure. The, the decision of a regulatory structure, it's not based on principles, it's not uh, justice, it's not equity, it's not the good things that us lawyers are used to thinking about when we think about the law. As a branch of the financial law, if you believe my argument, it's the costs and benefits of regulatory structure which should decide. And in our own study, we find that the costs and benefits militate for a Twin Peaks regulatory structure in Hong Kong. And it's not our place in this presentation to go over the arguments and to show the data why this Twin Peaks regulator is best for Hong Kong. There's other videos that you can see which go through step by step this argument. But for the purposes of this presentation, all we have to know is that Hong Kong's regulatory structure is wrong, and you can even see in figure 3.8 here that the complicated uh, institutional reporting arrangements between these regulators clearly shows there's a problem with regulatory structure in Hong Kong, even if you believe nothing else. And that new integrated regulators can help deal with some of the integrated problems that we see coming from China. We know that the problems coming from China are very large in terms of real estate shocks, financial sector shocks that are integrated within themselves because Chinese financial service firms offer a range of services now. So we need these integrated regulators here in the International Financial Center to deal with the integrated problems that we face in the hinterland in the mainland where these shocks are coming from. Now, once that's done, 
how can we think about Hong Kong's place amongst other international financial centers? We said previously that Hong Kong exists in an ecosystem of international financial centers. We know that it is not a zero-sum game, namely that one international financial center's win is another international financial center's loss. We have already observed a division of labor or a division of comparative advantages across international financial centers. And you will see a further description of uh, these sectors of financial services where different cities in China have exhibited a comparative advantage. But to give a summary for the purposes of this video, we see that Shanghai has shown certain strengths in bond markets and bond trading, wealth management. Shenzhen has shown comparative advantages in IPOs and also in wealth management. Hong Kong isn't best at everything, just like economic theory tells us. Hong Kong shows its advantages in equities trading, derivatives to a much lesser extent, and the emerging RMB trade. But in many of these other areas, we have ceded the ground to places like Shanghai, Shenzhen, and Beijing. Beijing is clearly the dominant player in banking. So how can we draft Hong Kong's financial law in a way which doesn't fight or go against the market and the incentives it's giving to financial service firms, but in a way which helps accentuate these comparative advantages in order to make the financial service industry here as competitive as possible? Now part of that means drafting regulations which broaden cooperation with China. China is still one of the biggest, deepest markets, and it's a market to which Hong Kong is very closely pegged on the investment side as well as on the trade side. And in our report, we talk about uh, creating tri-party purchase clearing banks and arrangements as such, so, so that Hong Kong banks can provide splashes of liquidity to mainland banks when they need it. We've already seen several circumstances where, on the interbank market, mainland banks have required uh, rapid deployments of funds, sometimes having to pay uh, large premiums in order to get those funds. And we also know this is an area of the market where uh, Hong Kong banks can make a large amount of money and where we have a large amount of liquidity. So why not focus on drafting laws which help develop those core competencies and develop a system which is in fact already emerging between Hong Kong and the mainland. So if interbank lending it represents one area, then the passporting of investments represents another area. And in the paper we discuss a mutual recognition platform agreement between the Securities and Futures Commission and the China regulatory uh, supervisor. And we, we know that there is a role for Hong Kong to play because we see the rapid development of mutual funds on the mainland, but while we see an increase in number, we do not see an increase in performance. We see that assets under management have remained relatively stable over time amongst uh, mainland funds, even though the number of those funds has increased radically. And that suggests that there's more market competitors, but that they're not actually offering anything new. The pie is being sliced up more amongst different people, 
whereas the pie is not growing. So how can we create a passporting scheme which actually helps mutual funds deliver funds to productive companies and grow the mutual fund and ultimately investing markets on both sides of the border? So we're thinking about law not simply as a way of gaming the international system, not as a way of offering tax advantages, but we're actually writing black letter law as a way of creating value and helping banks to create value vis-a-vis -vis their final clients. So in the case of interbank lending, we're drafting law as a way of delivering funds quickly and efficiently to banks when they need them. And in the case of platforming, uh, writing black letter law in a way that delivers funds to mutual funds so that these mutual funds can then allocate money to productive companies. So we're using law to add value by facilitating access to the competencies that are already based in Hong Kong. Let's think for a moment about uh, systemic risk. This is an area that concerns regulators very much, and it's naturally uh, one of the greatest potential weaknesses for Hong Kong integration with the mainland. Once there's a mainland crisis, then systemic risk will affect everything in the area, including Hong Kong, and therefore lead to uh, Hong Kong banks going bankrupt, real estate prices going down, and a host of other problems that we discuss in our paper. Now, one approach is to try and buffer the financial system, to say, well, if there's all this systemic risk, then why don't we increase capital requirements? Why don't we increase the amount of money that uh, banks have on hand in case there's a decrease in asset prices, such that there won't be runs in the bank, such that there won't be collateral calls, such that uh, people won't be worried that their counterparts won't be able to repay them. Now, that's certainly one approach, except it's a costly approach, and all of us rightly deep in our gut think, hmm, there's something wrong with this approach. It's very complicated. It's very difficult to implement. It's uh, expensive for regulators to enforce. There's got to be a better way. And in fact, what we show in the paper is that there is a better way for Hong Kong, and that is the way that classical economics tells us to deal with any kind of risk. That is through diversification. So rather than buffering ourselves, why don't we diversify our transactions away from the mainland and therefore reduce the potential impact of any mainland origin crisis on Hong Kong's financial institutions by having a rich set of clients in other jurisdictions like Malaysia, Indonesia, etc. And in the paper, the way we argue for this is we show not only the effect that a mainland crisis would have on our funds and other subsectors of the financial services industry, but we show the way that increasing employment of financial advisors and the way that those financial advisors can work in other jurisdictions. We show that because a China origin crisis will uh, so radically affect employment in Hong Kong, why are we employing so many uh, financial advisors dealing with the mainland? Why don't we engage financial advisors that help to find, sell, and promote the productivity of assets in the wider ASEAN region? Now, 
how do we deepen local markets? We know that in order to take advantage of these reformed regulators and the opportunities on the mainland as well as in the wider ASEAN region, we need locals to go out and do it, to seize this new set of opportunities we're providing for them. And we know that they can only do this if we promote participation. The government can add another 2,000 experts for free if the government encourages participation in the drafting of our financial laws. The kind of zeitgeist to date has been, well, regulation is something the government does, the government consults with us, the banks, or academics, etc., but we're not really a key part of the, the drafting process. Now what if we turn that on its head? What if we say, look, we're the guys that know what needs to be done out there in financial markets and the regulators are here to facilitate us. We're not here to facilitate them by providing feedback. They are here to facilitate us by providing rules of the game where we can play in a safe and profitable way. So if you believe that argument, then we can draft a set of provisions in the regulations which encourages the HKMA and the SFC to engage much more actively with us uh, so that we can write these financial laws. And we also know that if we adopt the advice of these experts, this will result in hundreds of millions of dollars worth of benefits. Indeed, one of the weaknesses we identify in the study is that Hong Kong does not do a cost-benefit analysis of most of the changes to its financial law. If it did, we could identify those areas that are good ideas and those areas that are bad ideas. Now, we know that Hong Kong regulators are undermanned, even though, as we show elsewhere, they're the most overmanned in relative terms and the most expensive in the world. But let's take for a moment the supposition that Hong Kong regulators don't have enough staff to cost everything out. Why not leverage on society? Why not throw out a lot of these proposals to civil society and say, look, you cost them out. In that way, we will understand much better what is to be done. And if we have requirements on civil society to draft recommendations in the way a regulator might do, namely that they're smart, or specific, measurable, actionable, uh, realistic, and time-bound, then the regulator just expands that much more. Now, we talked about increasing participation through words, but we also need financial law which increases that participation through deeds. And there's a range of reforms that we can engage in which actually brings in civil society, the financial institutions themselves, into the drafting of this financial law. Part of that looks at um, deeper understanding of the way that concentration affects uh, incentives around corporate governance, and we talk about that in the paper adopting corporate governance regimes which encourage the good management of our companies and therefore consequently encourage investors to invest in Hong Kong companies, but also adopting measures which empower the minority and empower investors to, to encourage boards to do the right thing vis-a-vis uh, -vis other shareholders. Now, how can we think about financial law and how can we think about financial law as a complex system? 
We know that complex systems are everywhere in the world around us. They're the most robust growth-oriented systems that we know, from the growth of plants to the development of harbors, from the weather all the way to a macro economy. We know that very simple generating rules where you say, for example, look at the cell next to you and divide, look at the cell next to you, divide, look at the cell next to you and divide. Those very simple rules can develop into entire forests. And I know this sounds very airy-fairy. When you read the paper, it'll look a bit more concrete. But just to give you the intuition of complex systems analysis, these very simple generating rules develop into very complex systems which are extremely robust. So given that we see this in nature, why don't we simply copy these good practices from the natural world? Instead of developing over 4,000 provisions in the securities codes alone, why don't we take very simple principles, very simple generating rules that I was talking about, and use those to regulate our financial system? Uh, compliance is a very a simple example of this. One approach is to develop crazy numbers of rules governing the way regulators oversee banks and the way that banks oversee banks and the way that clients oversee banks. Instead of adopting all these crazy rules and checks and balances which are very costly and complex, why don't we engage in a very simple reform of the regulators encourage the development of a financial services development council which is overseeing the whole system and thinking about how to improve it and focus on a principles-based system of regulation rather than a rules-based one. We see this approach already occurring in the US and UK as a way of encouraging financial law to self-organize or organize itself rather than being overseen by uh, hordes of regulators sitting in government ministries which are trying to oversee a very complex financial system. Now all this seems kind of abstract and you're saying well that's good for Hong Kong what do we do here in China? Now there's several lessons I think from Hong Kong's exercise of looking at promoting the stability of our financial services sector there's several lessons for China we know that they're called dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models and these are the models that regulators have been using to model out the effects of large-scale crises like a potential China crisis and in the past regulators and economists have used these crazy complicated models ignoring the principles of complexity theory in order to try and figure out what will happen when a crisis occurs, why it will occur, and what to do about it. We know that even at the city level for Hong Kong, this approach, it's impossible to understand and the models are almost always wrong. So given that we can't even use this modeling approach for Hong Kong, how can we hope to do this for the entire country of China, which has famously been called a United Nations microcosm, given the diversity of populations, economic systems, and so forth. We know that China is one country, but there's four international financial centers at least operating uh, in the greater China area. And we know that for the sake of simplicity, for the sake of trying to coordinate these four international financial centers, we need a complexity approach, which is actually an approach geared at simplicity. 
create simple rules followed by the international financial centers and let those financial rules dictate a division of competitive advantages between the international financial centers, for example. We know that uh, theories are okay, but we need hard law. Law is the way that we turn ideas into reality. And in this presentation, we have shown how we've taken these ideas, how we've taken a simple task, which is to maximize the value of assets under management, which is the performance side of the equation, and then look at how our financial law affects conduct and consequently structure. We know that simply engaging in the kind of exercise that we did, looking critically and independently at some of the risk areas, in itself offers an independent perspective that this exercise, if it's done by a regulator, regulators have no incentives to tell you the truth. You will never see in a regulator's report uh, in big bold letters, oh my god, we're all doomed. You simply won't see that. But you will see it in an independent report, and that is why we tend to prefer independent reports over government written ones. So to, in that respect, the Hong Kong exercise is extremely edifying. Now, can Chinese cities undertake the kind of prophylactic activities that we have proposed here in Hong Kong? Can they reform the regulators? Can they tackle corporate governance? Can they diversify the economy away from investment, production-based growth? And hopefully our own report has shown that it's possible at the very micro level to cost out the potential activities, again using costs and benefits as a guide, and come up with very simple trim tabs, very simple regulatory changes which move the whole big boat. So the solution perhaps to protecting an IFC as well as even heading off the Chinese crisis of the past might be simply to aggregate the solution at the city level. If we solve the fragility problem for Beijing, Shanghai, Hong Kong, Shenzhen, Taiwan, depending on your view of the greater Chinese area, if we solve the problem at this level, then by consequence, by inference, we have solved the macroeconomic problem in total. So to that extent, looking at Hong Kong's doomsday book, looking at our what-if manual that we've written, might serve as a very useful model for other international financial centers, both within China and abroad. This has been another Infographic Instant with Brian Michael.